Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, grant that your word might be spoken here with boldness, heard with attentiveness, and obeyed with readiness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As theological topics go, few are as challenging as the nature of the Holy Spirit. He is mysterious. He comes and goes throughout the Old Testament, empowering God's people in sometimes strange and surprising ways. In the New Testament, he's said to be the bond of unity that makes the church one in Christ, indwelling each believer and sanctifying us. And yet, can any of us honestly say that we understand the Holy Spirit? For that matter, most of us don't even talk much about the Holy Spirit, if we're being honest. We may talk about God the Father. We may talk about Jesus, his son, but the Holy Spirit just doesn't get much airtime in our minds. So let me start off by issuing two reminders about the Holy Spirit before we even begin to approach the subject. Two things that we often forget or at least neglect in our consideration of him. First of all, that he is a person. He is a person. He's not an it, he's not an object. He's not a thing. He's not an impersonal force. He's a person, just as the Father and the Son are persons. I have to say this because it's common to think of the Spirit. We fall into this mode of thinking of the Spirit as less personal than the Father or the Son. And the reason for that is very simple. I know fathers. I know sons. I don't know any spirits personally besides the Holy Spirit. So it can be harder to wrap our minds around the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. Nevertheless, the scriptures convince us of this. He is a person, not an object, not a thing. Secondly, that he is God, fully divine in the truest sense. He's not a second-class member of the Trinity. He's not a second-class citizen of the Holy Trinity. He stands alongside the Father and the Son as the Lord, the giver of life, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He shares in the perfect love, the perfect life, and the perfect will of the Holy Trinity. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere present. In creation, he hovered over the surface of the waters. At Jesus' baptism, he was there descending as a dove. At Pentecost, he came as a mighty wind or burning flames, and each day he comes to us, whether we realize it or not, as helper, comforter, and teacher. The Holy Spirit is a person, The Holy Spirit is truly God. He indwells us. He sanctifies us. He raises us up to share in the life of the Holy Trinity. And God chose a very particular miracle to mark his coming. At Jesus' coming, we have the star of Bethlehem. We have these signs that point the way to the coming of the second person of the Trinity. Pentecost is no different. We have these signs that point the way towards the coming of the third person of the Trinity. There's a sound like a mighty wind that rushes through the place. Flames appear, looking like tongues, and then rest upon the apostles' heads, and they start speaking. And then this amazing thing happens. At this, at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? I'm going to repeat the list that Larry uh, uh, so expertly led us through with all of those uh, 
trip, uh, tripping spots. Uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, uh, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and, and so on and so forth. All of these places, all of these various languages and cultures hear the gospel spoken in their own language. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So the miracle God chose to mark this wonderful arrival of the Holy Spirit is a miracle of language. This story ought to remind us of another episode in Scripture, the Tower of Babel. The people at this point in the book of Genesis are said to all share one language, and they resolve to build a tower that could be a testament to their power, reaching to heaven itself. But God looks at this display of pride, and knowing the evil that resides in the human heart, he cannot allow humanity to grow so self-satisfied, self-sufficient, and proud. So the Lord says, behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Humanity, after this episode, was diversified and dispersed and therefore divided. Why? Because of our sinfulness. Because apparently if we had remained unified in spite of our sinful state, we would have been capable of greater evils than we can imagine. So it is a remarkable thing that when the Holy Spirit comes, he undoes the Tower of Babel. He reverses this loss of language, this loss of understanding, this loss of unity. He makes it possible for each person to understand in their own language the mighty works of God. This, by the way, is the seed of uh, something that will bear fruit in many years to come for Christianity. One of the things that makes our faith unique is that it can be translated into any language, any culture. Not all religions allow translation. In Islam, the Quran must be read in its traditional language of Arabic. Translations of the Quran, in fact, are not considered authoritative. They're not even considered translations. They're called commentaries because the original must be read in Arabic. That's the authoritative version. But Christianity from the beginning has allowed the scriptures to be translated. And over the years, the Bible has been translated into countless languages we believe that the message can be translated without losing its divine meaning. Here's why this matters. Many religions are cultural phenomena. They are cultural phenomena. They're not just systems of belief, but systems of culture and nationality and ethnicity. The Christian church, on the other hand, has always consisted of many cultures many nationalities. And in fact, this is the one theme that becomes dominant in the New Testament is this relationship between Jew and Gentile. The gospel is not for one culture, but for all cultures, not for one race, but for all races, not for one people, but for all people. The gospel is a message for everyone to hear. That needs to be said because I believe there is a disease of tribalism that infects the American church. What I mean is that we have a tendency to divide. 
As a result of our fallen nature, we are still prone to division. We divide our churches on the basis of race, of theological minutiae, of culture, of political persuasion, of economic status. Walk into any church in the United States and it won't take you long to discover that all the members there have an awful lot in common. Now, a lot of this is unintentional and, of course, understandable. But whether we realize it or not, we feel ourselves drawn towards people like us and drawn away from people who are different from us. At a previous church, in fact, consisting of mostly white middle-class members of various ages, I knew of a couple who left the church because there were not enough people like them. They also were white middle-class members, middle-aged. The only difference was that they were much wealthier than the average member of the congregation, and this pulled them away from unity with the rest of the church. I'm not trying to judge or criticize these people, but we need to realize that this kind of move is one that happens much more often than we realize. We seek out people like ourselves. I want to suggest that the Holy Spirit enables us to begin challenging that tribal mindset. Listen again to the list. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, in other words, people from all over all sorts of people. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The unity that we find in the Christian church is not a unity based merely on common culture. It's not a unity, in fact, that's based on ourselves at all. It's a unity that comes from the Holy Spirit. It's a unity that is discovered and discerned only in the light of the gospel message. The image that comes to me is the image of receiving communion. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but by far my favorite moment in the Eucharistic service is when I get to serve communion and minister communion to each person at the rail. This is my favorite moment because it's here and only here that I really get to see the church in the face of each and every member of the church. And let me tell you, It's a mixed bag. I'll just let you know. I've watched politicians kneeling side by side with the homeless. I've watched successful businessmen kneel alongside families who are struggling to put food on the table. I've watched the elderly helped to the rail alongside mothers carrying newborn infants. I've placed the body of Christ into light-skinned hands and dark-skinned hands, youthful hands and arthritic hands delicate hands and calloused hands. I've spoken the words, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, to faces with downcast eyes, or eyes that look up at me, or eyes that smile, or eyes that are overrun with tears. I've seen so many members of the family of God different in so many ways, and yet all of them united at the rail. All of them come forward with empty hands, humble themselves before the Lord's table, and gratefully receive his body and blood. St. Paul tells us, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 
Brothers and sisters, we are one body in Christ. Thanks to the Holy Spirit, we are one body in him. Whatever divides us from one another, it has been overcome by the presence of God's own spirit. Whatever differences we have, they are overwhelmed by what we share. One spirit sharing one gospel message through the one body of Christ. Differences of language, differences of culture, differences of personality, differences of any sort can never divide what God has united by his Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.